Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And for a moment, let's step back 25 years to 1994. Ace of Base had the top song on the Billboard charts. Seinfeld was the most popular TV show. You know, chicken salad's not the opposite of tuna. Salmon's the opposite of tuna, because salmon swim against the current, and the tuna swim with it. Good for the tuna. And President Bill Clinton was dealing with a post-Soviet Russia awash in corruption and poverty. With regard to, to Russia, I think that on balance... Uh, our relationship is still sound. It is based on our perception and their perception of our shared interests. And when we disagree, we will say so, and we will act accordingly. In that moment, a quarter century ago, America and its economic system, capitalism, seemed pretty great to lots of Americans. Alternate systems had not worked out for Russia or Eastern Europe or China. Our approach appeared unequivocally to be the best. A quarter century on, though, that greatness has begun to feel a little bit shakier, says Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Stephen Perlstein. We have some of the highest health care costs in the world. We live through a painful recession, and our debt is high. But the bigger change has been the change in the social norms. What is acceptable behavior on the part of a company, a manager, a worker, an investor, a consumer? And we've all, in various uh, ways, become less trusting and less cooperative. And, you know, we're out for ourselves a little bit much. Now only 60 percent of Americans, 42 percent of young adults, think a free market system is the best option. That's a big drop, even over the last decade. And Perlstein argues it might be time for something new, or at least a serious reinvention of what we've been doing. I think we right now are at the point where our inequality and our unregulated capitalism actually is reducing growth and reducing the size of the pie. That's not true everywhere. There are some places where, yes, there is a trade-off between fairness and growth. They're on one side of the sweet spot. We have brought ourselves to the other side of the sweet spot. Perlstein is a columnist for The Washington Post and a professor of public affairs at George Mason University. And he says the wild success of those at the top of the food chain, it certainly discouraged many in the middle class and many poorer Americans. But it's more than that. Something fundamental seems to be wrong with the system. Many Americans, whether they're succeeding or not, have the feeling that our kind of capitalism has run off the moral rails, Hmm. that it's too ruthless, that it encourages kinds of behavior that offend our moral sensibility, that undermine our sense of uh, everyone's in this together. It undermines our uh, trust and our willingness to cooperate with each other economically, but also politically in ways that we don't like. And Mm -hmm. we don't like that kind of society. And we wish we could have something that was less ruthless and didn't offend our moral sensibilities so regularly. Was there a point at which something changed? You know, we're talking about, okay, a quarter century ago, you've got the fall of communism and people think, well, for sure, we've been on the right track. And now people are not sure. Was there like a moment where things just turned? Well, I would say there is, uh, we have to go back even probably before the moment you have in mind. Okay. There was a moment in the mid-1980s when we were worried about the future of the American economy. 
there were blue ribbon commissions and and uh, magazine covers worrying about the competitiveness of the American economy. We were just beginning to have a lot of competition from Japan and from Europe, particularly Germany. China had not emerged yet, and and even beginning South Korea. And our products were too expensive or not good enough. And uh, we were losing market share in our own market. And there was a serious concern that we were going to go the way of Britain and no longer be an economic superpower. And we actually took some fairly definitive steps to make our capitalism leaner and meaner. And we needed to do that because otherwise uh, we wouldn't have been competitive. And there were some losers to that, and it worked. By a decade later, the American economy was back on top, and Japan no longer seemed like a big threat, and China, again, was just coming along. And so we got, we got real confident about it. And in order to do that, we embraced a set of ideas, which we can talk about, And those ideas helped us rationalize what we did. The problem is that in in since, say, around 2000, we have taken those ideas and we have pushed them to too much of an extreme. As a result, we have a kind of capitalism that that we're not comfortable with. Hmm. One of those ideas was greed is good. Another of those ideas is that there is a trade-off between fairness and economic growth. You could have more fairness but that will always come at the expense of the economy growing. Another of those ideas is we don't need to worry about inequality of income because all that really matters is equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there's a fourth idea that we need to trust the way the market distributes income because it is an accurate and objective calculation of each person's economic contribution. And as a result of that, you don't want to tamper with it because it screws up incentives, and it also is immoral. It's like I created that, and now you're going to take something, take right. it away from me. Right. That that's that's like theft. So we embraced a bit of all of those ideas, and that was fine. But then we pushed them. It became such an ideology, and conservatives pushed it. Market conservatives pushed it to such a degree that it's now brought us to a place that we're not comfortable with. But it, it, part of what you're saying sounds like we had this notion that, like, the market, even though the market's not a person, uh, like, has this a kind of intrinsic wisdom, like this intrinsic you know, essence of truth. And if we listen hard enough or we let it, you know, alone enough, it will tell us what that truth is. Will tell us what truth and it will bring us greater, all of us, greater prosperity than we otherwise would have. It's the old Adam Smith idea, which is that if everybody pursues his or her own selfish interests to maximize income, welfare, profits, whatever, that as if magically the invisible hand will not only um, make that person's life better, but in fact make everyone's life better, that that's the magic of capitalism. Everyone acting selfishly, and even though we don't intend to make everyone else better off, that is the product of everyone acting selfishly. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Stephen Perlstein, author of Can American Capitalism Survive? So let's talk about some specific ways in which you think we should kind of reinvent the capitalism we've got going on now. Let me tick through a few of them quickly and, and you can sort of give me the, you know, your best take on what we would do. Salaries executive salaries, regular people's salaries. How do you think we should think differently about them in the system you'd like to see than what we're doing now? Okay. So I'm a market guy. You have to understand that. I want capitalism to work. So my first instinct is not, you know, to uh, pass a law that says that companies can't pay executives a lot. I can see a lot of reasons why that might not work out so well. But here's what I would do. Uh, A lot of our big companies offer very generous incentive plans, stock options, bonuses. They're basically various ways in which they share their success and their profits with their top executives and their top talent. So what I might do, what I suggest doing, is say, look, let's change the tax code to say the favorable tax treatment that companies get for doing that You won't get it in the future unless you spend at least as much money offering some sort of profit-sharing plan Hmm. for your frontline workers and all workers. Hmm. That's a way to nudge them in the direction that when companies are successful, they share success with everyone. By the way, when they're not successful, then they don't get shared. There's no guarantees, but that profit-sharing ought to be the norm in companies rather than the exception. And it ought not to be, you know, $250 at Christmas. I mean, we're talking about sharing significantly in the success of the company. Hmm. Are there things that in a kind of re-envisioning of capitalism you would give to everybody that, that maybe people don't have now? The one thing that I mentioned in the book is an idea that probably all your listeners have heard some variation of in recent years because it's got quite popular, which is a universal basic income. But I give a particular twist to that. I don't call it that. The way I frame it is, look, we are all citizens of the same country, the same great country, which has a great economy. And the reason the economy is great is because we have built up a set of companies and institutions over many centuries that really work very well. And these are institutions and companies that we had no no role in creating. So we just inherited them. And we all should be entitled to an equal share of some of the benefit of that. And so what I would do is to basically, on January 1st or someday every year, send everybody the same check or deposited in their bank account. The amount I suggested is $3,000 per person. So if there was a couple, it would be 6000 And if they had children, two children, well, that would be 12000 And because this is America and because I know about the politics of welfare, I would say, and if you work or if you are a full-time college or above student, you get another $3,000. Because you do you think is it is that because like to help sell the program? Uh, well, I don't I don't I, I first of all, it keeps the cost down. But mostly okay. the reason for doing that is so that we are so as Americans, as much as we want want this to be or not, we don't like the idea of welfare for people who don't work. We just don't. And it's it's a, an impossible political sell. Most people do work and most people want to work. So to say that we will only give this extra 3000 to to people who, who work, that's still most people. I mean, right now in the United States of working age people, it's, you know, still, you know, 95 percent of people. So 
that would be a pretty good basic income. And if people are working, of course, there's a minimum wage, which we might want to raise a little bit. I wouldn't raise it to 15, but I certainly would raise it somewhere to 10 nationally. And those two things, plus maybe continuing with uh, some other programs, like, for example, daycare programs, perhaps some degree of food stamps, those would lift every almost every household out of poverty. Hmm. Now, you might think that's going to be really expensive, and I won't say that it isn't somewhat expensive, although I would pay for it in a couple of ways. Number one is I would eliminate other programs that uh, give people money, which are much more bureaucratic and are much more conditional and have all these conditions. You have to wait in line and show this every month and get checked up on and all that, which are very demeaning to poor people and also very expensive to run. But the other way I would do it is is basically for people whose income are much above the median, I would start to to basically raise their taxes and basically take away with one hand what you've given them hmm. with the other. Okay. So give it give it to everybody, but Warren Buffett no, loses Bill Gates it on the other end. No, doesn't get to keep right. it, and yeah, I don't okay. get to keep it right, either, right. by the way. Right. I mean, uh, but basically to, to reinforce this idea that we're all in this together and we're all equal. Now, I would combine this citizen's dividend with an obligation. Okay. Citizenship obligation, which is say for three years during your lifetime, you have to commit yourself to doing public service. You could do it when you're young, you could do it when you're old, you could do it when, you know, you're out of work in the middle of life. It's up to you to decide. But that, you know, to reinforce this idea that we're all in it together and we're all responsible for each other, I like the idea of combining it with public service, which is an old idea, universal public service. It's an old idea. It sort of went out of fashion, by the way. It went out of fashion about the same time as all these other things started happening. That is in the late 80s, early 90s, when, you know, markets were everything. Uh, public service to many people says government service, although it doesn't have to be. You could do it for a nonprofit. Anyway, that's my idea mm-hmm. for both giving people something but also demanding of them something privilege plus responsibility. Do you see kind of, I mean, in some ways, I think some, you know, people might hear uh, the things you're thinking that should change and think that's pie in the sky stuff. But on the other hand, I wonder if there's some degree of fertile ground for a change. I mean, even though we live in in a time of huge sort of political fighting and tribalism. If you think about, for example, President Trump on the campaign trail in 2016, talking about how he was going to give people much better health care. You're going to love your health care, he said. And, and, you know, somebody like Bernie Sanders talking about giving people health care that they were going to like much better than what they had. Is there sort of beyond the divisions any sense that there's something we're moving towards or there's fertile ground for somebody to, uh, I don't know, rethink the way that we're doing American capitalism. I, I think you're right about that. There is fertile ground now because people are so unhappy that they're willing to consider radical ideas. In fact, it's probably easier to get the public excited and and get consensus around a big idea than it is a small change. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> when you get a small change... The normal person doesn't pay any attention to it, and all the special interests pay a lot of attention to it, and they they basically uh, kill each other, and nothing gets done. 
So I think there is fertile ground for a kind of for radical change. The problem with that is it could be radical in a good way or radical in a bad way. Uh-huh. People were so fed up with things that they were willing to go with a guy who they know was a liar and a misogynist and, uh, and sort of a jerk. But they thought, well, you know, at least he'll shake things up. Well, <laughs> I guess he's shaking things up. People perhaps are coming to the realization that maybe he's not the guy. Hmm. But there is there is an opportunity, I think, for radical change. But it should be radical within the context of what most Americans want and value and find acceptable. Hmm. And this is something that both people on the left and the right, the far left and the far right, sometimes f- forget. They they think that they can convince everybody to change their view of something. The left would love to convince everybody to, to take every refugee uh, who knocks on our door and to allow everyone who is now an immigrant to, you know, bring in six relatives or would allow huge amount of redistribution. But Americans aren't comfortable with those things. They don't think they're right um, or they don't think they're good for themselves. And rather than trying to force things down their throats, maybe you ought to listen to the American people and find stuff that a lot of people would would agree to. You know, 60 and 70 percent of the people would agree to. And let's just do those before we, you know, get doing things that are much more controversial. And there's a lot of things that we agree on. Mm -hmm. If you ask Americans... Should all Americans have the right to, to, to medical care so they don't die just because they don't have a lot of money? A lot of people say yes to that. And there are a lot of things uh, like that. Should someone who, uh, you know, invents a company uh, that has billions of dollars in profit, should that person get to, to be a billionaire? Most Americans will say yes to that, too. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that, that, that we agree on and um, that, that maybe sound radical con- compared to what we do today, but they're not radical in terms of what Americans uh, think is right. Stephen Perlstein is a columnist for The Washington Post. He's a professor of public affairs at George Mason University. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. One final note here. Though there's been a lot of attention paid to the gap between the richest and the poorest Americans, there's another economic gap that's been widening for the past couple of decades, the gap between productivity and workers' pay. We'll have more about that on our website, innovationhub.org. to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Emily Griffinius. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.